Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Antonio Bologna. Antonio is the Group Managing Director at LVMH. He's also a member of LVMH's Board of Directors and Chairman of the Executive Committee. Prior to joining LVMH, Antonio was at Procter & Gamble, where he was President of PNG Europe. He holds a degree in Economics from the University of Pavia. Tony, how are you doing today? I am doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks for asking. So to kick things off, could you tell us more about your journey to becoming LVMH's Group Managing Director? Listen, I have to go back a, a, a few years. I was born in a small town in the north of Italy, so a province boy, very normal youth, characterized, I would say, by a few things that uh, <clears throat> stand out. One, I was very busy with all sorts of sports, both individual, but what I really liked the most was team sports. I was a Boy Scout, and then um, a little bit inspired by my mom, I developed a passion for interesting trips. So one trip that stands out was when I was 15 years old, I traveled to the US for summer camps playing basketball, which has been a little bit of a highlight. School, well, I, I went to the Universidad di Pavia, as you said, which was a tradition in the family, not far from home. I'd say that I studied economics, general economics, in fact. What was important was the drive to get results and to excel. And then I think it's a feature of Italian university in general. I learned how to continue learning, if you allow that, in terms of a new problem is presented and getting despaired you try and uh, address it uh, with curiosity. So I then joined PNG just uh, out of school and the army, where I again was in the sports group. Joined PNG in Rome, and I was a brand assistant in marketing. The idea was to start with two, three years before going to a different type, uh, maybe of an MBA, but I got in love with the job and the people that changed a little bit my trajectory because from a promised boy, I moved to Rome. And then with PNG, I had international assignments. I worked in the US. That was a little bit of a way of making up for not going to an MBA. Okay, I then went back to Italy. I was in Greece. That was my first job as a country manager, small company, so I couldn't do too much damage. I then was the GM in Italy and then moved on uh, to different countries, Brussels, uh, Switzerland, uh, President of Europe. At that point, I was attracting and doing something different. After over 20 years at PNG, which uh, remains uh, strong in my heart because it really gave me the foundation for the ethics in business and uh, for marketing and people management. And uh, in 2001, I joined LVMH. I was keen to stay reasonably close to my family in Italy. So Paris was perfect. I would not have taken a, any competitive or similar company to PNG. Why do that? So I was attracted by a very different company 
where the categories were different, the mentality was different. It was built around an entrepreneur. The product spoke to me. And so I'm coming up on the 21st year in my job. In certain ways, it has always been the same. But in reality, it has been very, very, very different in the challenges that is presented over this time. Super interesting journey. So could you just tell us in a little bit more detail about what drew you to your current role in particular? Yes, I will, uh, first of all, uh, start with a little anecdote, okay? Because when I was the president of PNG in Europe, uh, I had a lot of calls from headhunters offering me different jobs. And in uh, two instances, uh, they called me suggesting uh, that there was a division at LVMH that uh, really needed uh, a new leader and that I had the right skill set to take the job. And I said, no, thank you. Then six months later, they called me back again saying, ah, now we have a new division. We know that this is a product area that you really like on the personal side. Why don't you consider that? I said, no, thank you. So they came back again four months later and saying, listen, we have a different idea. And that's an invitation to have lunch with Mr. Arnaud. I said, okay, that's it. So <laughs> I did go there and we sort of eat it off. Not that we were very similar. We were quite different, but I think that the difference has worked well in contributing. I certainly have learned a lot from him and I'm hoping that he has learned a little bit from me as well. Very different business, as I say, with products that are really at the core of our lives and therefore socially super interesting and sociologically super interesting. Uh, <coughs> totally different type of culture, very European continental entrepreneurs so decision-making done in a different way. I say that uh, for somebody who has changed job in his life only once, uh, I am quite proud of the due diligence that I did at the time. I sort of got into something with a good idea of what would be pluses and what would be minuses because all cultures have strengths and less strength. So it has been an incredible adventure and journey, but uh, I thought I got in there with uh, a decent understanding of uh, what it would be like. I must say I was at the same time very concerned about uh, taking a risk. I had uh, over 20 years of equity at PNG and everybody loved me, okay? But uh, at the same time, I was attracted by doing something new and uh, with different people, different culture, different products, different type of company. So I like that very much. Great, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are actually curious about what goes on in your you know, day-to-day work. And I'm sure that no two days are the same, but what does a typical day look like for you? So the concept of a typical day, it's a, it's, it's a difficult uh, one to identify. I would start saying that in normal times, uh, I have always traveled quite a lot because where you get out of your zone of comfort, where you meet the customer, your first lines, where you see competition, where you get ideas is not in the office, but outside the office. It's a very important piece of philosophy. So today I'm doing with more regional trips, okay, or local trips, but I still try to get out as much as I can to see the uh, reality of things. 
The other thing is I try to have a, a very open door in terms of making it easy for people to get into my office or to send me a WhatsApp or to send me a call, whatever way to connect. It's important for them, but it's as important for me. The risk is that of losing the um, touch and the connection with the market that, as I say, changes at incredible speed. So all ways that can keep us closer to the market and to those evolutions are very appreciated. One very practical thing, I hate when the day is planned, sort of bumper to bumper, morning to evening. I hate those days. I need a little bit of time to, first of all, I cannot stand still and sit for more than half an hour. You'll see me walk around at one point. But apart from that, it's good to have some stimulation and move around. So I try to ask my assistants to plan in a way that I can have time to think, look at different things, get out of the office, come back, etc. So, and then obviously there is the time when we do budgets. Okay. That's a, also a time where I meet about 50 teams in the space of 40 days. Okay. That's quite an experience because it's a good way of really looking at the business in, in perspective. It's also a good way to look at our organization model where the culture in each of the businesses is so different. And that demands a little bit of effort on our side, but it's our organizational dream coming alive because if the culture inside the brand is unique, well, the expression of that brand will be unique out in the market. And that's what we want. Some great insights. And one of the things that you mentioned was how digitization has taken off even more and was accelerated more as a result of the pandemic. And in 2021, with regards to online luxury goods, there was 27% growth, which is two and a half times higher than in 2019. With this in mind, how do you think the business landscape is evolving in the long term? Well, our vision is extremely clear in terms of believing that there will be a omnichannel type of approach. That's what we see in the customer as much as they did switch to the internet and found that it was convenient, smart, and fun to buy through the channel. We have seen them coming back with great pleasure to our stores as soon as that was possible. And in the industry, you have, depending on the categories, about 15 to 20% of the business going through e-commerce with a lot of hybrid forms developing. You can order on, on, on the net and then go to the store and pick it up. That will give you an opportunity for visiting and discovering some of the products. Or you go to the store, you love a product, but it's not there in the color that you wanted or in the size of the shoes that you picked, then we can send it home. So I think that's the way the customers see that. My kids have always been telling me, for us, the brand is a brand and we should have exactly access to, you know, the same type of offer and, uh, and messages. But it is true that we see our stores and we have 5,000 stores and we are very, very keen on them as uh, places for incredible experiences. 
Okay, that's where people come for discovery, people come for advice, people come for excitement and surprise. And we see the opportunity to buy through the internet as a great complement to that. It's quite a good way to look at it is both should get better to hang on to their future. So for having people who move from their couch to the store, take their car and drive, you need to have fireworks happening at the store. Okay? In the same way, the uh, sales and the experience that you do through the net can be elevated a lot through a different type of product discovery, different type of narrative on the brands, use of you know, artificial intelligence or augmented reality to do things that you cannot even do in, in physical life, easier and more functional sites, you know, less clicks, better service to the customers, and certainly a delivery and packaging that add value. It's all, I think, is moving from a pure transactional view to how do we make this ceremony as differentiated and as value-added as we have built it physically for many, many years. So we see the two channels working well together, both giving us a direct contact with the customers and hopefully expressing different dimensions, but a certain coherence and consistency to the brand whether the touch point is physical or whether it's digital. Great. So the luxury goods industry has made some really interesting strides in sustainability in recent years. What do you think has been done especially well and what more do you think needs to be done in this area? I would start saying that the industry is inherently towards sustainability because we privilege value over volume because in most categories, our products are built to last and to be repaired. And because we have supply chains that go back to use very precious natural materials, okay? Which we therefore care about and support. I'll give you some examples for biodiversity. We have programs for in support of bees from Guerlain, programs in support of roses from Parfum. So because we care about preserving those natural species, we do a lot of work in that area. I would say that we are far from being perfect, obviously, and that there is no you know, easy solution. It's more of a journey. We have had the environmental department for almost 30 years now, but the, the topic has taken, I think, a different dimension over the last few years. Before that, we had a great example of excellence driven by the different maisons, but no real coordination. Starting 2014-15, we have started to focus on uh, you know, a program at group level, which would fit in uh, the very diverse industries we are in. Obviously, agriculture is a big subject for wine and spirits. Uh, okay? It is, uh, to a certain extent, uh, for perfume and cosmetics. Uh, it has nothing to do with jewelry, where, however, the chain of supply for diamonds and stones uh, has a huge implication, more social than environmental. Okay? 
So we have to fit in all of those. We have uh, a program which we call uh, LIFE, which is LVMH uh, initiative for environment. We had the first phase, which was LIFE 2020, and now a new one that is called 360, with clear areas of focus. One being biodiversity, one being the traceability of all of the ingredients and work that is done not only in our own sites, but also by our suppliers. One certainly is around global warming and the consumption of energy, where quite interesting, we have a very peculiar footprint. Transportation and stores are the huge component of that. So we are focusing on replacing all of the lighting in our stores with LED, which is much lower consumption. We are moving as much as we can of our transportation on rail or on water because of lower transportation. Okay. And then, you know, last but not least, uh, we call it creative circularity. That is, uh, how do we reduce the level of waste? How do we reduce the level of leftovers? And we have a number of initiatives there. I'll quote two. One is a platform for recycling which is called CEDRE, which has been doing this for the last 10 years, where all of the sort of packaging or in-store material can get recycled. And another one, which is done by some intrapreneurs inside the group, okay, which is called Nona Source. Nona Source, a small group of people we have created. I'm the president of the company, so I'm very proud of that. They basically buy all of the textile, and the leather okay, from the companies that are not used, and they sell it back to some other companies of the group they may need it, but most importantly, to small companies outside, to schools, to students, to anybody who needs that. So that's a very virtuous process where we try to channel the leftovers. Obviously, the real solution is trying to be smarter in the way we produce, so we do shorter runs. We try not to have leftovers. And so not perfect at all. Good program, a group-wide program where different maisons have different priorities. We have clear objectives which are totally aligned with the recent global conferences. And I think there is very, very broad awareness driven once again by the younger employees and by our customers who choose not just brands because of the products or the image, but also because they like to associate with brands and they do the right thing. Definitely some very great initiatives underway. And Tony, we've had a really interesting conversation about the industry and about your career, and you gave us some insight into some great lessons that you've picked up along the way. But to wrap things up, is there any advice that you'd like to give to university students? So I obviously would love to be in your place and start it over again, which uh, shows you how excited you guys should be because the adventure in front of you is uh, a fantastic one. I go back uh, certainly to the value of uh, curiosity that I mentioned earlier as a, a great uh, engine. And uh, I will add to that, uh, that one thing is certain is that uh, the future is not what it used to be. You don't know what it will come. And my encouragement would be to privilege questions, 
doubt, reflection over certainties. Those who get stuck into their certainties then find much more difficult to move on. Then I say, be yourself uh, with uh, pride and humbleness. Okay, everybody has his own uh, strengths and shortfalls. I think that uh, building on strength uh, is certainly important. That's what we recruit for. We don't recruit people because they are rounded or okay on everything. We recruit people because they have fantastic strengths and we try to complement their flaws. Okay. At the same time, you can turn your, even your flaws into better things. I have always been a relatively shy person. Okay. Well, rather than that becoming a major limitation, it is sometimes, okay. I've used that to say, well, I will be more of a listener. I will study my stuff better because if you are more prepared, it's easier to do your thing. And it has been a reasonably virtuous circle, okay? Not in the sense that I have changed completely, but that I have put even that small weakness to my service. And then the the last thing is, uh, I think that I see leadership as a service. I think that it's, uh, you, you really are at the service of a group of people. You are at the service of a company, of a project, of an idea, and having the smart to leverage your position, your knowledge in a way that will lead to the best outcome is an important thing that a lot of people don't know how to practice, okay? And so those are three things that I think suggest uh, strongly and that can be great engines for success. Uh, whatever careers you will pick and while I've changed only two jobs and even for my age is quite unusual, okay? The reality is that those jobs have changed continuously and I've been presented with new challenges every year. That same thing will happen uh, to you guys. Life goes even faster, but... I look at that as an excitement, as a great opportunity for lifelong learning. I am an apprentice still at my young age. That's a good one. That's some very practical and inspiring advice indeed. So I'm sure that our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.